Well, welcome. So great to see so many folks and some new folks attending. So great to hear from so many folks who are watching online. We, we get some responses from folks who are not here, used to be here, guys who attend their own church on Sunday mornings and then watch our service on Sunday afternoon. So whenever you're catching us, we're, we're just humbled that you are joining us at all. Uh, hey, we have been walking through some thoughts that, you know, if you're new or you're just catching us, we are getting towards the end of a long series to understand discipleship. And this last little section, I just, I, I really wanted to put some emphasis on this last section of discipleship because most of us have been around the idea that, you know, being a Christian means praying. Being a Christian means reading your Bible. And we've got songs that say, you know, read your Bible, pray every day. We, we, we're used to hearing this kind of stuff. But there's an aspect to the Christian life, to being a disciple that can be overlooked. And it it might be one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. It it is the aroma, fruit-bearing dimension that the, the living God came near to our lives and touched us in such a way that something became noticeable. Right? This is this is not a powerful book. And and Christianity is not a powerful religion if it does what most every other religion can do. It just brings you some information, but you're never transformed by it. You don't become a new creature. Your life doesn't begin to get shaped by and and give off a, a new form of life. If that never really happens to us, we don't really have much to talk about, really. But... In God's kingdom, there's an aroma, the presence of God. When it mixes with our lives, which is what God does, it produces these aromas. And so we want to talk one more time today about the aroma, specifically the aroma of gratitude. And some of these thoughts, uh, just to to frame them, we've been pulling them from uh, some content developed by uh, the family of churches that we're a part of, Sovereign Grace Churches, has stood up something recently, put it on their publication and their websites called Seven Shaping Virtues. We have values that Sovereign Grace is familiar with. We have seven shared values as a family of churches that are priorities for us. These are seven shaping virtues. And and I've pulled them into our conversation about aroma. Because quite honestly, um, I've told this story about when Peter and I first went and visited uh, Sovereign Grace back in the mid late 1990s and 1997, and we, you, you were among a people that you could smell something. I mean, it was just you know I, I know most of us when we walk into our own homes we stop smelling our own house odor. You know everybody knows you don't have a house odor, right? Until everybody else comes to your house and it's kind of like no, you do. Uh, well, you, we can get used to what we smell like here, but there's something about going and being amongst uh, a group of people who were walking in Christ and building the kingdom of God, a different setting that we had been in. That certain fragrances were just very noticeable, very noticeable, and we walked away having been impacted by a people whose lives were being transformed. And the presence of God among them smelled a certain way. It's like when you came in that meeting, there was, there was loud, grateful singing taking place in those meetings. That's an aroma. It's an impact of something that's laid a hold of people's hearts. So I'm going to pull this last one just straight from their website. I'm going to read this paragraph to you uh, as gratitude is described as a shaping virtue among our churches. And then I'm going to just pull the phrases apart. There'll be four phrases we'll interact with today. So let me just read you their paragraph. All gospel benefits are received as undeserved gifts from a gracious God. The only appropriate response to such generous grace is gratitude. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. Second thought we'll look at. A thankful heart is cultivated the more we remember, understand, and appreciate all the ways the Lord has blessed us in the gospel and through his common grace by which he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Third thought will be, we are also grateful for other Christians. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, Paul told the Thessalonians. And then the last thought we'll see is each local church is to be a community of gratitude, giving thanks to God in everything we do. And whatever you do, in words or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's just pray for a moment. Uh, Father, at the close of our time together today, we are going to celebrate communion. Lord, a moment designed for gratitude. Lord, that meal serves to remind us of why we are grateful. And so, Lord, today we're going to interact with some solid profound reasons for our gratitude. Lord, more than just being a church, being told to be grateful, Lord, help us today to discover the reasons for our gratitude. So Holy Spirit, be among us, open our hearts, and use your word to penetrate our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first thought. All gospel benefits are received as undeserved gifts. From a gracious God, the only appropriate response to such generous grace is gratitude. You pick up that word, undeserved. In your outline, if you have an outline there, you'll see a thought written out. Undeserved is a massive shaping concept in the fostering of gratitude. When you or I go to interact with our lives, right? when we stand up the question of examining my life, the events that have taken place, the people that are in it. How did I get here? Do I like the life that I have? Have things gone my way? Have things gone better for others than they have gone for me, right? This is what we just interact with on a daily basis. Just open up, you know, Instagram and and you've got an arena of comparison taking place. And am I happy with where I am, et cetera? So my, my question though is, are you tempted to begin that analysis with what I deserve? Do I feel like I'm not, I'm not getting what I deserve? Right, you and I live in a world that uses that phrase a lot. The world begins its conversation about self-analysis with what do I deserve? And you might not notice how prevalent it is, right? Those of us who grew up years ago, you'll remember that McDonald's believed that you deserved a break today. I remember those days. Um, It wasn't just about stop in and eat. There's something about your life. You deserve what McDonald's is about to do for you on your behalf. Uh, there's, There's something about listening to a significant game being played in the playoffs in the post game interview. That sounds often like after all we went through, you know, we deserve to be in the big game. We deserve. See, there's something about having read my Bible, that word sticks out to me. It's almost like, I mean, I get it. And there's, there's a good sense in using some of these words, by the way. You know, it's like, you know, I am so proud of you. I, it's like I almost can't use that phrase because pride is such a curse word in the Bible. Deserving is that kind of a word. It, it assumes something about our lives that the Bible doesn't portray that way. You know, there is a sense of justice in the world that is framed around the idea of what we deserve. And so this injustice that's that's being done, the outrage in it sometimes can not just be that there's mistreatment here. That shouldn't have happened. There's a sense that I deserve something different than this. Well, how does the Bible interact with what we deserve in our lives. Paul spells out the gospel in its pieces and and quite clearly in in Romans chapter three. It's a very, very, very important section of scripture for any of us to ever understand the gospel. So if you're new to the Bible, can I suggest read slowly and carefully the book of Romans, particularly the first three chapters to get you to this moment, to hear God say this at the beginning of gospel explanation, Romans three, verse nine. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
as it is written. All are under sin. So the gospel's starting place is to put us in this condition where sin has shown up on the scene of our lives. We are under its claims. We are under its effect. It has infiltrated our lives. It is touching us. No matter what we feel about ourselves, this is true of us. Sin has shown up in our existence. And then it goes on and says, therefore, there are none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All right, now I'm not going to take the time that it would really take just to study this passage. But how I many you can tell already, God may have a different definition for good than what humanity has. Because, I mean, let's be honest right now. You're reading that passage and the... And, If somebody has walked up to you on the street and said, can I just tell you, no one does good. I've never met another human being who did good. Now, quite honestly, on a human level, it'd be inappropriate for that person to say that. It's not until you put all of creation under the authority and the character of God that that begins to even make any kind of sense. Because relatively speaking, there's a lot of good people out there. Lots of them. Lots of people are good people. They treat people decently. They sacrifice and give something away, et cetera, et cetera. But the God of the universe looks on all behavior of humanity and he says this. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses. And bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is a screaming declaration. They are justified. Those who are undeserving are justified by his grace as a gift. So that's where the rightness of our lives comes from. That's where righteousness comes from. Not something that we have brought, not a relative goodness between any of us, only from this gift from God. This is where the great apostle Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down, how do you have a conversation with this thing called the gospel? This was Paul's starting place. This is where the gospel begins its conversation with us by establishing something first. You are undeserving. Not popular, is it? Right? Not the kind of thing that even sounds like you should be telling people. That's discouraging. That's kind of making people feel guilty. That's, you know, hey man, I come to church for for something else. Can I just tell you up front, if you don't get established undeserving, you will never graduate into gratitude. If you don't let God first explain how it is that we are undeserving when he interacts with our lives in the myriad of ways that he does, we will have a hard time ever moving into this category of truly being grateful, truly being humble, truly being amazed. We won't sing very loud because we're not overwhelmed by the gracious gift that we have received because we have raced past the sense that we don't deserve this. So if you pulled that verse apart, right? If you looked at Romans 3 and you looked at you know, these, these descriptives, verse 13, the throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, right? 
There's a they pronoun here, so we can all talk about those people out there if we read this carefully, right? Those people out there. I've known some people who, when they go to interact with others, their agenda is to deceive. There's venom underneath their lips. Can we all humble ourselves just for a moment? This verse isn't intended for everybody else to apply it. It's intended for every human being to apply it. Have you ever been wrongly motivated in your life? Have you ever presented something to others that was intended to make them think you were saying this, but you were really manipulating things? You were really controlling something. You had an agenda in what you were actually trying to do that was underneath your lips. It was like poison in what was being said, but you weren't going to notice it, that it was poisoning. Have you ever done anything like that in the last week? I mean, ever. (laughs) Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The Bible's got a lot to say about our words, what we say. Right, A sobering thought that we will render an account for every word, idle word that we have ever expressed. God is concerned about our words. We say things with our words. You ever, have you ever said something to somebody in anger that's been destructive for them? Have you ever interacted with somebody's well-being in a way that has dragged them down? Have, have, you, have you had repeated conversations? Have you said things behind someone's back that's destroyed their reputation? Right? These, are, these are destructive words. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. So not only their words, but their actions. Have you ever, ever done anything in your life? And, and listen, I'd love to say this only comes to life for people who've never gotten around Jesus, but Unfortunately, there's too many stories. And if we're all humble, we still don't do the right thing all the time, even when we know Christ. So these things show up still. The biggest one here, I think, is verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God simply is in the wrong place in their life. When God is in the right place, he is the object of awe and worship and everything, everything gets interpreted from starting with him. Everything. Why does that exist? What's the purpose of that thing? Before I change the definition for that, how does that report back to God and what he had in mind? Is is this wrong? Is this activity wrong? Is this bad? Is this good? You, You can't answer any of that unless you start with God. I love the song. Stephen, thank you for pulling that song that we sang this morning. It's all about you. I'm, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. How many of us are here today? We have made our lives answer to something else besides every breath, every hair on my head, every moment that I live, everything I go through, every relationship I have, every accomplishment about my life is all about him. I've made it about something else. And I'm calling the God of the universe to answer for what I've made it to. And I'm mad at him. And I'm keeping in a distance. And I'm not talking to him because this has gone a way I didn't want to. And that's gone bad. And my life doesn't feel the way I want it to feel. So, hey, God, answer to that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen, I'm I'm totally sympathetic to every person in this room who, like me, can feel like the wheels have come off. God is on vacation. I thought he was good. This does not seem good. And we begin in our hearts to accuse God because we made it about something else besides him. And then when life began to answer to glorifying God, we wanted it to answer to something comfortable about us and something preferable about us. We made it about something else. And in spite of that, God steps in to our undeservedness, our undeservedness, our posture of antagonism toward him, that we would dare call him to mind. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing created does not say to the creator, why did you do what you did? And it's humbling to stand in the presence of God and recognize, I don't know enough 
to call God to task like that. But I do. And I'm sure you got your own ways that you do as well. And yet, in spite of how undeserving I am, God moves toward me, which makes me blown away, doesn't it? Which introduces me to grace. So the word undeserving has fallen on tough times out in the world. And, and what has overwhelmed the word undeserving is movements like self-esteem and positivity have overwhelmed the idea that you could possibly be looking at yourself and, and feeling you're undeserving. Self-esteem wants to talk you out of that. And let me just say this. There are some helpful things about correctly seeing yourself. And so beating yourself up constantly and, and just thinking poorly about yourself just because you think that's just a, a, some kind of a great posture. That's not good either. But what's happened is almost like let's cancel Romans 3 so that we can make room for these other ideas. If that's what your idea that psychology has introduced to us, the psychology that wants to make you feel good about yourself at the expense of Holy Scripture that is inspired by God that comes along and says, there's none righteous, no, not one. None have done good. None seek God. Oh, well, that's just really devastating my self-esteem. We can't take it out of the Bible. It's the inspired word of God. And... If God's words lead to life, you don't want to take it out of the Bible. You want to let that word have its impact on your soul because it will humble you and bring you before God and you'll be celebrating the greatness of this God and the grace of God because you have properly received undeservedness as a label. I think I wrote in your outline, gratitude from the undeserving has a polarizing, kind of oil and water-like impact on things like grumbling, complaining, entitlements. This gratitude, it may rescue us in a way that nothing else can. Let me give you a great thought here. Sam Crabtree, my wife, turned me on to this book, Practicing Thankfulness, Cultivating Gratitude in All Circumstances. And this is an outstanding book. Good way into it now and can highly recommend it. He says this, thankfulness is neither trivial nor inconsequential. On this one quality pivots the difference between maturity and immaturity. What do I mean by pivot? A gate pivots on a hinge so that it swings one way to open the path and another way to shut you out. Wars can pivot on a single battle so that one side decisively takes the upper hand when the outcome previously was in doubt. Ask Napoleon about Wellington at Waterloo or Hitler about parachutes at Normandy. The war seemed to be going in one direction, then wham, things took a sudden and decisive turn. Gratitude is pivotal in whether I'll be given over to folly, right? To beginning to think of entitlement and anger and frustration and disappointment featured in my life. It is decisive, he says. More than a mere word, gratitude reveals each person's core, his priorities, his presuppositions, his understandings of God and his ways. Zal Moeller puts it, how grateful we are is the key to understanding what we really believe about God, what we really believe about ourselves and what we really believe about the world we experience. Accordingly, between gratefulness to God and indifference toward him lies the distinction between wisdom and folly, the pivot. Everyone's entire future swings like a hinge on whether thankfulness is lubricated to swing easily or if it's ignored, become encrusted by the rust and corrosion of our heart's indifference, bitterness, or some self-inflated sense of entitlement. Now remember, all these aromas, they're byproducts of something else. You can't run straight to them. Right? It, it is a little bit of a foolish endeavor. I know we do this as parents when we require our children to be thankful. We drive them straight to the response, and we overlook the reason for the response. Okay, theologically, you don't ever want to do that. 
This is not just God saying, hey, I'm cool with you not knowing anything. You don't understand a thing. You can't even spell my name, but you be thankful from now on. That doesn't sound like the Bible, does it? Gratitude grows out of our understanding, our awareness, our mindfulness of who God really is. So we we don't engage gratitude like we can go straight to it. You cannot go straight to humility. You cannot even begin to install humility without some scale. You don't have any scale until you've gotten around God and gotten yourself properly next to him. If I put myself next to you, I cannot arrive at humility. I can arrive at comparison. I can arrive at jealousy. I can be angry. But I need God's scale to bring humility into my life. Well, Well, gratitude is like that. Which brings us to point number two. A thankful heart is cultivated the more we, listen, remember, understand, and appreciate all the ways the Lord has blessed us in the gospel and through his common grace by which he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is into everything. All right, so it's appropriate for us to think gratitude flows into every category of our life, every moment, every historical piece of it, everything that's touched our existence, all those things. I think I wrote in your outline, it will take some theological help to be able to actually see all the ways that God qualifies to be thanked. So in this statement that sovereign grace has created, there is a highlighting of something called common grace. Common grace is ways in which God has just caused creation to be of benefit and of blessing to us. And they're, they're all around us. And so whether you follow Jesus or not, you live in a world that's got beautiful beaches and the sound of ocean waves that come and you get to swim in that and there's food to taste and the rains fall. And they make things grow out of the earth and and you can harvest those things and eat them and be sustained by them. And your lungs can pull in oxygen and your heart can continue to beat. And and by the way, you don't have to think about making your heart beat. Aren't you grateful for that? That all day long you're not thinking, beat, beat, beat. Don't talk to me right now. I'm concentrating. It's like just little things that God has created that he has given to us in this world. This is God's common grace. And then you and I have this unique privilege to live in this moment in history on a piece of the earth that is, for the most part, not like most other places, is it? It's called the first world. We're not in a third world setting. So listen, I know there's lots, and this is unfortunate. Maybe the Lord can help us in these regards. There's, you know, it's, it's been a hot summer. Has your air conditioner given you problems? Right? You know, so the response to that can be, oh my gosh, I can't get the temperature to come down. It's hot in here. Good night. Is, it, is the air on? Uh, most of the world doesn't have air conditioning. I get to go over and press a button and change the climate. Right? Here's, here's a comparison. We did a missions trip. We did a bunch of missions trips in, in central Mexico. But one in particular sticks out in my mind. Uh, we went to this very tropical area. We used to go to deserts. And so deserts at night would cool off. And so you could open the windows in these kind of interesting hotels that they called them hotels that we stayed in. And the air was nice and dry and you could sleep. Well, we, we stayed this one time in this place that was tropical. It was, I mean, it was really tropical. I remember a couple of you guys walking up and down the mountains in that area of the uh, country and almost having a heart attack. But I lay in bed one night, the first night we went and investigated this area and... I was, I was sweating everywhere and just sweat was running. This is, I'm laying in bed and sweat is running down my face, down my neck. This is in bed. And this is how people live all over the place. I just go press a button. Anybody complained about traffic lately? (laughs) Does something kind of go, but I have a car. I can drive anywhere I want. Wow, lots of people can't do that. Public transit, go for a walk. I get to get in a car and go, right? So there's common grace and just blessing all over our lives. Then there is this theological goodness 
that God is doing things in the mystery categories of our lives. And it sounds like this. These momentary light afflictions are working for you in eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Afflictions are in the hands of God, being used, designed, manipulated, touched by him, so that there is an eternal weight of glory being produced right now in me and for all eternity in my life. That's mysterious because he did use the word affliction. So what it can feel like right now is this is bad, not going in a good direction, not going to end happy, very painful. But God lets us in behind the scenes. But this is one of those things that you have to, great phrase, remember, understand, and appreciate. You have to do a little bit of theological homework to know that there's a God who interacts with our world in a particular way so that for all eternity, glory is going to be my experience. And he's working for that even now. Right, let me get some help from Sam Crabtree. He says this. He says, we need to understand that God is always working. Even the things that grieve God the events that threaten to crush us, the things that elicit his compassion and comfort for his people, those things are, listen, not accidents or flaws in the plan. They come from the same God who loved us enough to send his son to die. The same God who says he will never leave us or forsake us. In the deepest pain, we can still Give thanks because our God is still here with us. He is working all things for our good, even if it is difficult for us to see how on this side of eternity. This kind of radical thankfulness simply isn't possible unless we are convinced that God is always working and that he is always good. Everything that afflicts or wounds and traumatizes us, including a collapsed bridge. He lived in Minnesota when the bridge up there, remember that collapsed? Your cancer, your miscarriage, your spouse's adultery, the death of your child, the loss of your job, or the collapse of the economy is under the total control of a God who is unchangeably for all who are in Christ. All right, can I just pause for a second? Those are some weighty categories, aren't they? And when I'm reading it, some of your names are flashing and your faces are flashing before my eyes because you have walked in these very, very heartbreaking, difficult spaces. God is so big, so incredible to be discovered, so toward us, that even in those spaces, God says, I'm, I'm there, and I'm always working, even in that moment, even what you went through, I'm there, and I'm at work, and I'm doing something eternal and something glorious, even in the midst of something that qualifies to be called pain, it qualifies to be called disappointing, it qualifies to be called disillusioning, it qualifies to have you shed your tears, it qualifies for you to question whether your life can ever be good again after that, which please pay attention, the person you're talking to that is described by these issues, they will not be fixed by your sentence. Life has gone deep and has ripped something out of the inside of them at a level that is very hard. Very hard. Please do not turn the body of Christ into cheap band-aids. Well, we've got a Bible verse for that. We've got a Bible verse for that. Oh, you'll be over that in five minutes. Hey, Bible study will be over in just a second. You'll be fine. No, they will not. They are living in a fallen world. They have been so deeply had their guts ripped out of them. They're having a hard time trying to figure out how to draw the next breath. But there's a piece of them that clings to the fact that in the mystery of God, God is with me. And he is good. And he is always at work. They're trying to cling to that with everything in them. Give them that much credit, will you? 
when you go to give them your answer as to how to fix their deep, deep pain. But that is a reality that lets me regain my feet underneath me and have a posture that is grateful that there is such a God who's watching over every day of my life. And I I can say, God, I don't get it, but I'm glad you get it. And I have to trust that you do. You know, there is this one passage I'm going to steer us to in Acts chapter 4. It is the most, I said this in your outline, the most counterintuitive moment of a possible flawed plan is dripping with sovereign lordship. It casts a shadow on all other events that any of us as God's chosen ones can ever face. It is what the apostles spoke and prayed and recognized in Acts chapter 4. Early as Jesus has ascended to the Father, the church is now on its way, but affliction has immediately arose and persecution has come. And Christians who want, long to follow Jesus, long to make known his gospel, are now being turned on by the government. They're being put in jail. They're being threatened. The outcome of, of their future lives are questionable. And this is what comes out of that moment. Acts 4 verse 23. When they were released from jail... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. That's the first thing out of their mouth. Very helpful for us in a moment where life feels sideways, upside down, and unexplainable that I begin my thoughts with, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Anointed, right? That, that little breakout paragraph might be all our natural eyes see. That's what we're beholding. But then they go deeper. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So we pretty much covered everybody right there, right? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Where'd they get that boldness from? I'm going to say they got it from the same place we get gratitude from. A spirit-given revelation of two words. Sovereign Lord. They looked at their life events out of control, things that didn't look like they could ever go the right way, all the power sources here. But when they have the Holy Spirit open their eyes to see who are we, who are we interacting with? Sovereign Lord, and he begins with creator of everything. By the way, right? God is the creator of everything. He is not the responder to anything. God doesn't come into a universe that's already been going on and seek to reform it. He's not like, hey, okay, uh, hey, guys, I'm going to do my best, but y'all are in bad shape. Who made this stuff anyway? And he shows up, and we're not quite sure. Can God fix what's broken here? I don't even know if he can. He is the creator of everything. There's nothing that exists that he doesn't own the rights to and understand completely inside and out. God is never responding to anything. And that's what they recognize in this moment that we feel threatened by the God we're praying to. He's not a responder. He's the creator. He's the one who owns all. He's Lord. That word Lord, it's the word despot. 
ruler, the one who has absolute authority, tell anybody and everybody exactly what's about to happen to you. He's a despot. So which means when the Gentiles and the Jews all kind of get in agreement, which was rare, but they're going to get into agreement. We're going to take Jesus out. And then the rulers, Pontius Pilate and Herod, those two guys didn't get along, but they got along now. We're going to take out Jesus. Everybody is going to do what they think is going to bring about the end result, only to find out that the sovereign Lord was accomplishing what he had set out to do from the very beginning. This, this is how the world operates. This is how God operates in this world. There's a phrase in here, though, that it, it pulls us into it. There are forces here, right? There are kings, there are Gentiles, and they've set themselves. There are rulers who were gathered together against something. Gathered together against and this is, where, this is where it gets hard, doesn't it? For every one of us. And I want you to actually make this much more personal. Don't just listen to me talk about this in scripture. But what about for you? What would you say right now is gathered together against you? You feel it. You feel threatened by it. You've begun to think about outcomes. Maybe, maybe there's more gathered against it than you thought at first, but as time keeps going, there, there's more people involved. There's a bigger problem involved. The need that was there that you knew you couldn't meet to start with, it's a bigger need than you thought, right? You had somebody come over and tell you, oh, you, know, you think your house was broken this way, it's broken this way. You're like, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to afford? There are things gathered together against us right now. You feel them in your life. So what's going to happen to your life as a result of those things? Where's that going to take you? Because the thing that freaks us out and scares us is, well, those things have an agenda. Natural courses, situational moments, people's ill motives, that's going to take us somewhere. We're going somewhere that this is going to end. I'm going to lose something. It's going to disrupt something. It's going to end something in my life that I value. The people in my life are going to suffer. The future is, is not safe for me. That, this is what we begin to think. Because we're filling in where this goes. But when God fills it in, when these guys are inspired and fill it in, they fill it in, ver, in verse 28. They are gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's why they're gathered together. Now, that when you talk to them, they don't volunteer that. Right? Herod doesn't stand up and say, hey, just going to do whatever the will of God is. Hey, you disciples following Jesus, just trust God. God's in control. I'm just going to do whatever. Pontius Pilate, did he stand up and say that? Hey, I'm just here to do whatever God's will is. The people around you who are against you, they don't, that's not their lead comment. The situations of life, when they step into your life and shake things up, that's not the lead comment. Hey, just want to remind you before I just tear your whole life half to shreds. In the end, God accomplishes everything he intended. They're not going to advertise that to us. Our circumstances don't do that. We, we need to investigate. We need to remember. We, we need to own and value what the Bible says here. These things are happening to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And right, so how about if you were to think right now about the things that are gathered against you, the people, the events, the circumstances, and they are on a trajectory to do whatever God's hand and plan has predestined to take place. How about if you knew that? How about if you were convinced of that in this moment? Could you give thanks for that? Now I can. Because I know what this thing answers to. It doesn't answer to itself. It doesn't answer to an impersonal, out-of-control universe. I am not under the weight of a whim. I am walking with a sovereign Lord. Over every moment, every person, everything about my life, he is working in them. Oh, Lord, thank you for whatever's in my mind right now. Lord, thank you. 
for the trajectory of where this goes. Thank you for your orchestrating responsibility for this. God, thank you for the good that comes because of what you're doing in and through this thing. No matter how complicated, no matter how much I can't understand it, it doesn't change your involvement and what you're doing. I need to know that. I need to know that there is a sovereign Lord who is always working and he is always good. Otherwise, I can't foster gratitude in my heart. I want to leave us some time to celebrate communion. So you can skim the other thoughts when you get a time um, and look at being grateful for other Christians. And lastly, the local church is a community of gratitude, giving thanks to God in everything that we do. Keith, you can come back. I'm sorry, Stephen, you can come back up. So we're going to take a moment this morning and celebrate communion. And I know sometimes communion kind of gets its own little life. It's just kind of the thing that we do and kind of we were talking about something over here and now we're going to do communion. But here's what's interesting about our celebration of communion this morning intentionally put this after this message. Most of us grew up in a setting where we were familiar with the term Eucharist. Right? It's not a religious term. It's a, it's a biblical phrase. It's a Greek word. And if you just pulled up a study of Christianity, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Eucharist, also called Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper in Christianity. So it's a ritual, a commemoration of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. The Eucharist is from the Greek word Eucharistia for thanksgiving. And it is the central act of Christian worship and is practiced by most Christian churches in some form. It is the central act. The word thanksgiving characterizes the central act. But remember what I said, thankfulness, gratitude is a byproduct. You can't go straight to it. You'll have to travel through what this meal represents to us. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on my behalf. The undeserving one. I'm about to eat a meal that has made me the wealthiest person in history. And I don't deserve it. I don't know what else is happening in our lives right now. There are many things and there's many things we question and many things we struggle with. So I know we're here with that. But in this moment, we come to eat a meal together that features a posture of sincere, overwhelmed gratitude because we are the recipients of something we absolutely didn't deserve. Which means if I don't deserve it tomorrow, it will still be seeking me out. For my good. What relief of pressure. What anticipation of God. So as we prepare ourselves to, to take the, uh, the elements this morning. Can you fill up on thankfulness? Can you, as you walk to get the cup and the cracker represents the body. Can you let thankfulness begin to inform what you're doing? Let's just not go through the motions here. This is a celebration of something we recognize that is incredibly valuable to us. We have entrusted ourselves and we have received God's grace through the Savior who has come to seek us out, to do good to us in the mystery of here and forever. So listen, if you have partaken of Jesus Christ being your Savior, your faith is in him. You have something to celebrate with incredible gratitude this morning. Now, if you have not done that, then this is not a meal for you. You, you can't really celebrate it because it's not really owned by you. It's not a problem for you not to take communion this morning. Maybe, it, maybe it's a good start of a conversation. Maybe you'd like to come visit one of us this week, come see me this week, say, hey, I had some questions. I'm not quite sure where I am with the whole Jesus in my life thing. But we'd love to talk further with you about that. But guys, we're about to partake of a meal of deep gratitude. Got any reasons 
to be really, really, really grateful this morning. Lay hold of some of those. And on your way, meditate on them. And we're going to come back together. So uh, are the ushers going to help me dismiss folks? Or just, it's a free-for-all? Okay, thanks, Doug. Um, Please try not to harm one another. But uh, in the back, there are some tables. And up here in the front, there are some tables where you can get both uh, the cracker and the cup. And so please make your way to do that. Stephen's going to lead us in a song and then I'll come back and lead us in our celebration of communion. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring Something that's of worth That would bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship When it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it When it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus, King of endless words, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring you more than, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear.
we just looked at the paragraph about gratitude. It requires activity like remembering and understanding and appreciating. Those three words are such important words. And this meal advertises God is interested in us getting those things. So this is a meal of symbols. We're supposed to look at the bread and remember certain things. So what are you remembering right now about this bread that inspires thankfulness in my heart? Is it, it's a physical presentation that the God who is spirit put on flesh and dwelt among us. A flesh that could absorb some things on my behalf. A human body for a God who created humans. He's not a human being. He's God. But yet he became his own creation. What does that do for my thankfulness as I ponder the other things that I've made it? Lord, I'm questioning something about you because my life is hard right now because things are happening that I can't understand. Uh, God gets that. He came as one of us. But he installed this reminder for us to remember. He took that on himself. All of our griefs he himself bore in his body on the cross. He's not a stranger to what you're experiencing right now. So Lord, can we ponder before we take the bread? Our own heart of gratitude for all that you have done in coming to us as a man in a body and taking upon yourself the crushing weight of our sin, the rejection of humanity that you experienced daily. Lord, this you did out of love for us and out of bringing glory to the Father. So Lord, as we take the bread, our hearts say thank you, Lord. Let's take it. Again, another symbol. Not a thoughtless symbol, but a symbol that means something. If you've been in Christ for a while and you've read your Bible a little bit, you know you stare at this cup that represents the blood of Christ. And maybe one of the most important clarifying sentences in all of Scripture is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And every one of us are undeserving. So we all need to be forgiven. And without what we hold in our hands, there would be no forgiveness for anybody in this room. Nobody you've ever loved with all your heart. Nobody you've ever hoped for that would be right with God for all eternity. There would be no hope at all. But instead, and I'm aware that there's a thing called forgiveness. I've received forgiveness. My God is not after me. My God considers that I don't owe him anything anymore. The wrath of God has been satisfied. I will never know. I will never, I will only know songs about the wrath of God. I will only know study about the wrath of God. I will never personally know what it is to experience the wrath of God because of his blood. Let's take the cup. Lord, our great prayer as we celebrate this communion meal, this meal of thanksgiving, 
is, Lord, that you would so mix these realities of who you are into our lives that there's an aroma that comes off of us. It doesn't take long for people to be near us before they pick up on gratitude. We just are grateful people because we have so much to be grateful about. So, Lord, let that be our stories, whether we are driving in a car, at home with our family, at the workplace, or gathered together as your people on earth. Lord, may the aroma of gratitude characterize who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Have a great week. Miss you guys. You guys watching. Grateful for you. Praying for you as well.